Today, I want you to imagine that you've got a, a tough conversation to have or maybe some bad news to break. How would you begin that conversation? Like, what words might you use? Or maybe how would you not begin it? Um, I'm sure at all, point, at all of us at different points in our lives, we've uh, been at maybe the receiving end of a tricky conversation where it wasn't handled quite that well. Or maybe we've dropped the ball ourselves and we've maybe tried to, do, tried to say one thing and something else came out. Uh, this week, I googled uh, worst ways to start a tough conversation. Um, these were some of the main ones that came up. Um, it's not me, it's you. Um, in my humble opinion, uh, with all due respect, and then probably saying something maybe slightly disrespectful. Um, quite a few others there. Hopefully you don't recognize too many of them from your own uh, vocab. Probably the best one for me is, uh, no offense, but, and then saying something probably quite offensive. Um, who here own up and be like, yeah, I've, I've used many of them before. Yeah, more of you than are putting your hands up, I think. And um, I know I definitely have uh, probably many of those. But we, all of us probably know, whether we have done it right or not, that there's, there's usually a better way to start a conversation than that, right? Uh, but one person who I think seemed to be a bit of ahead of the curve with this a little bit was the Apostle Paul in the Bible. The New Testament is full of letters that he wrote to different churches. And it doesn't take you long to read some of those letters and realize that some of these churches, they were in a, a real mess in some ways. We obviously only have Paul's side of the story uh, in the Bible, but he often seems to be writing to churches that were, in one way or another, they were getting something pretty wrong, and he was writing to kind of talk to them about that. And so I think Paul would have been well within his rights to have maybe been a little bit more direct than he was. I've, I came up with a few um, like help, helpful ones for him that I thought he could have used. So to the complete failures in Ephesus, you know, I've got a bone to pick with you, to the regular church attenders in Philippi, well done, you know, for turning up. Uh, to the church that's been a real mess, sorry, that's in a real mess in Corinth, where do I even begin? And no offense, church in Galatia, but how are you still not getting this? <laughs> I did try to come up with one for us here at Trent, but I decided I'd probably just offend too many people. So um, I just decided not to do that one. But I think some of those probably would have been fair when you go on to read the rest of the letters. Paul had some quite serious stuff to deal with at times. But if you've read them, you'll know that that isn't actually what he does. Maybe someone had told him about like the compliment sandwich, um, and he was, he was doing that good thing, not so good thing, another good thing at the end. But I think probably, more likely, Paul knows that although there are particular issues that he did need to speak to uh, these different churches about, more important than that is these people needed to know who they were. They needed to know how amazing it was, everything that they had in Jesus, and then he could come on to some of the more challenging stuff. And a few months ago, I came across uh, a little verse in the Bible that, where Paul does this a little bit, and I've probably read it and glossed over it countless times, but for some reason this time it really stuck with me. And the verse is found right at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans, and Paul is writing to the followers of Jesus there, and he opens the letter by introducing himself a little bit, making a couple of comments, and then he says this in verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Loved by God and called to be his holy people. Now, if you've not read Romans before, it's one of Paul's uh, longer letters than some of, some of the others. He wrote it to some of the earliest Christians at the time. And a lot of what Paul goes on to cover is the truth of what we have in Jesus, how amazing it is, and how it changes every part of our lives. And so, at the very beginning of this letter, to describe 
his audience, he uses these two different phrases, loved by God and called to be his holy people. And when you read the rest of Paul's letters, he wrote a number in the New Testament, he often starts with something very similar, uh, particularly referencing the fact that he's writing to God's holy people. He often writes something like that. And so I think it's fair to say that these words aren't just something that Paul threw together in the moment. They're not just an accident. He'd really thought about how to address the people that he was writing to. And so he began with those words, loved by God and called to be his holy people. And I think this is one of those verses that is easy to kind of just gloss over and get onto some other stuff. But it's fair to say that for us, as God's people here in Nottingham, we are loved by God and we're called to be his holy people. And so I think it's worth just pausing for a little minute and thinking, like, what was Paul actually trying to explain here? So I want to do that by asking you guys two questions this morning. Uh, The first one is, do you know that you are loved by God? And the second one is, do you know that you are called to be his holy people? So we want to begin with that first one. Do you know that you are loved by God? Yes, love that. Um, And just pause for a second before you may have immediately had something uh, pop into your head. But for many of you, maybe we've been around church for a while, you've heard it, and you know that even if you don't feel it necessarily inside, that the like, Sunday school answer is to say yes, so you, that's maybe what you'd say. Or for others of you, it may be that you're new, you're visiting this morning, and you've never really thought about that question before, that there is a God that loves you. Or for others, it might be that you've heard it plenty of times, you've heard people talk about it plenty of times, but for one reason or another, you really struggle to believe that about yourself. It might be because of the way you view yourself or the way other people view you, but you just almost can't believe that there is a God who loves you. And wherever you might be at with that, I think for all of us in the room, every single one of us, the significance of this question is often lost on us a little bit. Because what we're actually saying when we ask the question, like, do you know that you are loved by God, is we're saying this. Do you genuinely know that you are deeply and profoundly loved and accepted, and even desired by the creator of the universe? Like, do you know that deeply this morning? Because when you really think about it for each of us, if we like really knew it, and we really believed it, the implications of it would be huge. There'd be no parts of our life that it wouldn't touch. Like, for example, if, if I really knew that I was loved by God, then I probably wouldn't spend as much time thinking about the thoughts and the actions and the words of other people because I would already know what he thinks of me. Or if I really knew that I was loved by God, then I probably wouldn't be as jealous or insecure or comparing myself to other people because I would already know how much I have in Jesus. Or if I really knew that I was loved by God, then I would willingly forgive and let go, probably even some of the biggest hurts because I would know how forgiven I already am. And I'm not trying to make it sound like that's just easy, that we can just do that. But I think sometimes because of our familiarity with these words, the significance of it is often lost on us. Particularly if we've been following Jesus for years, it's easy to lose sight of how good it really is. I know for me, I've been a Christian for about 18 years. And I think more and more, I'm, like, the longer I've been a Christian, it's almost the more I'm realizing, like, do I really know it as deeply as I could? And a couple of years ago, I was on a course Uh, that I guess it was like digging into your beliefs about yourself and about God. And each week, there was a bit of homework to do. And one week, the homework was called imaginative daydreaming. 
And now, I don't know about you, but immediately my cynicism kicked in. And I was like, imaginative daydreaming. Like, what even is that? And what does that have to do with me? And do I really want to do it? But, you know, I've always liked doing my homework. So um, I gave it a go and um, thought, I'll see what happens. And what I had to do was I had to take the story from Matthew 19. We've already mentioned it this morning where Jesus, he welcomes and blesses um, a number of children. And I had to basically over about 30 minutes, invite the Holy Spirit and just immerse myself in that story. Like, what could I see as like maybe a, a small child, an eight-year-old me, what could I see, what, what was happening? And so I did this, and to my surprise, I found myself like fully immersed in this story. Like looking at the children ahead of me in the queue and like the looks on their faces, the way that Jesus was interacting with them. And just kind of like watching. And then eventually I found myself at the front of this queue. And Jesus, he picked me up, he put me on his lap. And I can remember out of nowhere, for some reason, a question kind of like came out of my mouth. that I wasn't expecting, I didn't plan it. And I asked Jesus this. Jesus, are you disappointed with me? And to be honest, this moment, it rocks me a little bit. Because I had no idea where that question had come from. But I think the fact that that particular question bubbled up to the surface probably said something about what I really believed under the surface about myself and about Jesus. And when I really thought about it as well and looked at my life, I could see it play out in my life as well. That even though I knew about God's love, I'd heard about it for many years, so much of the way that I lived my life seemed to be more about trying to prove myself or trying to earn the affection or the admiration or the approval of people around me and really to try and earn the same from God. That even though I know I had it freely, I was still trying to do something to earn it. And that moment was a bit of a wake-up call for me because it was one of those moments where I was like, I don't have to live like that. Like, Jesus, he's not disappointed in me. He loves me. Why do I live like he is? And I wonder for you what maybe it looks like for you this morning. Maybe you've heard the gospel, you've heard about God's love before, but maybe even if you've been following Jesus for 10, 20, 30 years, there might still be a part of you deep down that's like, really? Like, does he really love me? Do I really not have to prove myself? Does it really not matter about that stuff from the past? Does it, is it really true? Does he really love me? Many of us, I think, will have been following Jesus for years and we will still be wrestling with that. And Basil Hume, he was the Catholic Archbishop of Westminster a number of years ago, he said this. He said, Christians often find it easier to believe that God exists than that God loves them. And I know I've probably found that to be true in my own life, if I'm really honest. When I read that, I was like, yeah, I can believe that. And I think if we're really honest, if all of us in this room this morning were really honest with ourselves, I think probably most of us would be like, yeah, I need to know it more deeply than I do. And so I guess the question is, how do we do it? How do we know God's love? Well, part of the way that we know it is we, we read about it, we read about it in here. I know sometimes that's like the answer for everything, and that's kind of because it is. Um, but this book is, is basically a love story of God's pursuit for us. And when we read it and when we really learn it, we maybe sometimes begin to believe it about ourselves as well. In the same letter in Romans 5, um, Paul says this, Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this book, 
It tells us over and over again that the creator of the universe, he so desperately loved us, he couldn't bear to be separated from us, and rather than just leave us to it, he sent his son to die what was actually a really brutal and excruciating death for us, not just for the sake of it, but because he loved us. And when we read it over and over again, we begin to actually believe it. So that's one of the things we can do. We can read this truth and we can anchor ourselves in it. But the other thing we can do is we can experience it. Like in the same chapter, a few verses before, um, in verse five, it says this, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Like God doesn't want us just to intellectually think about his love. He wants it to change us. He wants us to experience it in a way that we will never be the same. And so I guess a quick question for you this morning. What if even right now in this moment God wanted to just reveal his love to you just a little bit more? Like maybe it's a bit of an experiment if you're up for it. Why don't you close your eyes and just take a breath. And I'm just going to pray. Holy Spirit, would you come and remind each of us in this room of how deeply you love us. Maybe in some of the places where we, we feel the most pain, Lord, would you show us how deeply you love us? You can open your eyes, but we'll, we'll pray more at the end. But I guess I just want you to really think about that question and not give it an immediate answer. Do you know that you are loved by God? Uh, Brennan Manning, in his book, he's a Christian author, and he's got a book called The Furious Longing of God, and he tells uh, what's quite a sensitive story, which I'm about to share, um, about a time when he spoke at a conference on God's love. And I, I wanted to read it in his words. He says this. About three o'clock in the morning, I heard a rap on the door and a squeaky little voice. Brennan, can I talk to you? I opened the door to find a 78-year-old nun, and she began to cry. We found two chairs in the hallway, and her story began. I've never told anyone this in my entire life, she said, but my father sexually abused me from the age of five. Brennan, do you know how dirty I feel? I've lived with so much hatred of my father and hatred of myself. In the next few minutes, I prayed with her for healing and that she would know God's love afresh. Then I asked her if she would find a quiet place every morning for the next 30 days, sit down in a chair, close her eyes, upturn her palms, and pray this one phrase over and over. Abba, I belong to you. Through tears, she agreed. Months later, one of the most loving and poetic follow-up letters I've ever received came from this sister. In it, she described the inner healing of her heart, the complete forgiveness of her father and an inner peace she'd never known in her 78 years. She concluded her letter with these words. A year ago, I would have signed this letter with my real name, but from now on, I'm daddy's little girl. That's a powerful story. When I read it, I I was really struck by it because it shows that when we really know 
God's love. And for many of us, we might be knowing it again and again, afresh after years. It changes us. It changes us in a way that we can't stay the same. And all of us we, in this room will have different stories, different upbringings, um, which will affect the way that we um, accept God's love or maybe even that we struggle to accept God's love. But the truth for all of us in the room is that if we don't really know how loved and accepted we are by God, then we probably will look for that validation and that love and that affirmation in other places. When all along, it is constantly and freely given to us in the person of Jesus. So that's the first question for this morning. Do you know that you are loved by God? And then the second is this. Do you know that you are called to be his holy people? Now, the idea of being a holy people might be something we're a little bit less familiar with than the idea of God's love, but as I mentioned earlier on, Paul, he opened almost all of his letters with a phrase like this, talking to God's holy people. And this isn't something that he just made up. This is actually an idea um, that he had taken from the Old Testament. The word holy, if you've not heard it before, when it's used often in the Old Testament, means set apart or like separate or distinct, like something that's being used for a particular purpose. And when you read the Old Testament, like part of God's vision for his people is actually that they would represent him, like that they would look different, they would look distinct to the people around them, not in like a physical way, but in the way that they lived their lives, they would represent him to the world. And over and over again in the Old Testament, there is this idea that God is holy, and so therefore his people should also be holy. And um, there's going to be some verses come up on the screen, all from Leviticus, we won't read through them all, but... There's just this idea that God is holy, so his people should also be holy. And then the New Testament uh, continues this idea. And it's worth saying, sometimes this can be a little bit confusing. Because as Christians, when we choose to follow Jesus, when we first surrender to him, in that moment, he makes us holy. He makes us holy and righteous so that we can stand before God without shame, without blemish. He does that there and then. So on the one hand we read in the Bible that we have already been made holy, right? But then on the other hand, there also seems to be this almost invitation that we read about in the Bible for us to become holy, for us to live that way. So in Philippians, Paul puts it this way. He says, let us live up to what we have already attained. Like we've already attained this, now let's live like it. In the Bible, it's almost like it's saying, you have been made holy. As followers of Jesus, you've been made holy and now go and live like it. Like, go and live in a way that actually reflects that holiness. So let me try a bit of a, probably a tenuous analogy that I thought up of. So unfortunately for me, the football team that I support is Sheffield United. Um, Any other Blades fans in the room? Unsurprisingly, no. Oh, yes. We can be friends. In fact, we are friends. We've talked about it before. Um, Can't find many others in the place. But excitingly, they have just been promoted back up to the Premier League um, to hopefully beat Forest next year. Um, um, so that's probably not maybe any friends. But anyway, we, you know, we, we can be nice to each other. But next year, right, regardless of how they play, they will be a Premier League football team. Like they've, they've now earned that status. They are a Premier League football team. And regardless of how they play in the first, second, third game, for each of those games, they will be a Premier League football team. But it's a whole other question of whether they actually play like it. It's a whole other question of whether they actually play like a team that belongs in the Premier League. And that now they actually have to act differently. We'll see if that happens. I'm not necessarily hopeful. But 
in a maybe similar way, we have been made holy, and now we're invited to go and live like it. Sometimes, though, I think when we talk about holiness, um, it can come with a bunch of assumptions about morality and about rules, and it feels like, well, it can feel like someone's just telling you to like, try harder, like be a better Christian next time. Um, has anyone ever felt a little bit like that before when you've talked about this kind of stuff? That it just feels a little bit like that. But when we think of holiness like this, we, we miss the point, really, because when God calls us to be holy, he's not asking us to do it just for the sake of it, and he's not asking us to discipline ourselves to like a set of rules. He's asking us to devote ourselves to a person. That's what this is all about. The heart behind holiness is not meant to be disciplined. It's actually meant to be devotion, devoted to him. And to be honest, I would say I found this quite hard to grasp over the years because for me, the way that I'm wired with my personality, I love a bit of discipline and routine and rules. Anyone else like a a routine, proper routine keeper? Yes, well done. Um, Sorry about everyone else who's bored at the thought of it. But for the years of following Jesus, there have been plenty of times where I have pursued this kind of holiness. But really, if I'm honest, at the center of it is just discipline and willpower. And anytime someone talks about like a spiritual discipline or something like that, I'm like, yes, something new to like try hard at. And um, yeah, you'll think I'm weird now. But that's a little bit of how I'm wired. But what I've found is that I just end up completely missing the point. And usually there's only so long I can actually do that for before it just becomes tiring and lifeless. Because there isn't a lot of life or freedom on the other side of doing it like that. We can't just will ourselves to become more like Jesus, but we can surrender ourselves to him. No one can just live up to that. And more and more I feel like this invitation for me and for you to be holy is less about willpower and is more about us following in the footsteps of Jesus himself and saying, Lord, not my will be done but yours. To allow my devotion to Jesus to be the thing that changes me. Because that's what devotion often does. We live it out. If we're really devoted, it changes the way we live. Uh, For example, we've had many friends who at different times Uh, one of their children has been utterly devoted to a Disney film. I'm sure some of you parents in the room, you'll know what I'm talking about. It consumes everything they do, right? So for one friend's daughter, and probably I imagine for a few, it was Frozen. And honestly, it felt like they wanted to watch the film like 24 times in a week. The parents were slowly going insane. And they they want to dress up like Elsa. They want to sing the songs all the time. They even want to eat their meals on a plate that's got like Elsa's face on it or something like that. They didn't just like Frozen, like they were devoted to it, they were consumed by it, and it changed everything that they did. Fortunately, not forever. But (laughs) devotion changes what we do. It might be uh, a really good friend hears that you've had a bad day, and they don't just think about it. Maybe they text you. Maybe they pop round and see how you're doing. Maybe they get you a gift or something like that, because they're devoted to you. They're not just like disciplined to being your friend. They actually want to show it. Um, Or another kind of silly example, my wife, Rhea, surprisingly, when we got married, she wasn't a big fan of Marvel superheroes. I don't really know why. Um, But out of her utter devotion to me, she is now a big fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know? Um, Yeah. Um, And it has changed that she's, out of her love for me, she puts up with my nerdy love for Marvel superheroes. And that's because devotion always leads to action. Devotion always leads to change, whether it's about something like that or whether it's something far more significant. 
Devotion will always outlast discipline. And the truth is, for all of us who follow Jesus, we are actually called to be as holy people. That's what Paul's talking about here. And if we can make devotion the center of our holiness, if that can be like our motivation, then we don't just have like a list of rules that we have to try and stick to, but we've actually got a person that we get to follow, Jesus. And he, he not only shows us what it looks like to live differently, but he actually empowers us to do it as well. So the question is, do you know that you are called to be a holy people? Because if so, in practice, this actually means each of us allowing Jesus to challenge us and to empower us to live the kind of lives that he is asking us to live. Holy and set apart for him in our work lives, in our friendships, in our families, with the words that come out of our mouth, with the way that we spend our money, the way that we spend our time. Nothing is unaffected by devotion to Jesus. And when we read about Jesus, it's clear that he was so kind and he was so gentle. But there are also parts of Jesus' teaching which actually are really challenging and confronting. Um, some of them are going to come up on the screen. Like, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Or the next one says, you cannot serve both God and money. Or anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or the last one, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And they're, they're challenging words, right? They're really challenging words. And if we view them through the lens of discipline, then it's impossible. Do you know what I mean? Trying harder, that's too much to live up to. I wouldn't be able to live up to that. But the good news is, if we can view them through devotion to Jesus, then we get to come to him and say, Jesus, I hear your words and I need you. Like, I long to be more like you, but I can't do it by myself. Would you come and would you help me live in the kind of way that you would love me to live? That's why devotion is so much better than willpower. And Jesus invites all of us, every single one of us in this room, to not stay as we are, to come back here in a year's time and to look different to the kind of people that we are now. The kind of people who say, not my will be done, but yours, Jesus. So what would it look like for you to freshly, today, just open your heart to Jesus and say, Jesus, what do you want to challenge and shape and mold me with? Do you know that you are loved by God? And do you know that you are called to be his holy people? And just as we finish, one of the reasons I was so struck by these two phrases that we're looking at today is it's not just one or the other, right? It's not just that we're either loved by God or that we're called to be his holy people. It's actually the combination of being both loved by God and being called to be his holy people. That's actually the beautiful vision that Jesus has for us, his church, to be a people who know so deeply that we are loved, to be so secure in that, that we can love and serve our city and the people around us without insecurity, without shame, because we know how loved we are. But also to be a people who not only know how loved we are, but we know that we're called to live differently, to be devoted to living differently, devoted to serving our king and reflecting the kind of king that we serve. We are loved by God and we're also called to be his holy people, both and. It's not always an easy balance to get right. But really when you think about it, when we really think about how loved we truly are, I guess is it not actually quite logical that we would want to live differently, that we would, something would stir in us that we would not be able to stay the same, but out of devotion and worship, we would be able to live 
the kind of lives that Jesus would ask us to live.